A word before we get started with today's episode of NTM Talk. While it may go without saying, it's important to remember that all views expressed in this podcast are the opinions based on the experiences of the participants and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have questions related to your own health, please contact your provider. Hello, and welcome to another episode of NTM Talk, where we have in-depth discussions on non-tuberculous mycobacterial lung disease and bronchiectasis. I'm Dr. Colin Swenson. And I'm Dr. Wendy Drummond. And today, we're going to take some time to answer more of your great questions that you sent us through the website. Once again, you've sent us some really good and challenging questions. And while we responded to each of you individually, we thought that some of the questions and answers warranted sharing with the rest of the audience. And so thank you for those questions. And again, please keep them coming. And Wendy, welcome back from what I'm sure uh, sounded like a fabulous vacation. Thanks, Colin. And hopefully everyone will forgive our couple-week hiatus. Um, I went to Maui with my family, and it was my first vacation. Well, my first time off, really, in two years. And then as my husband, were, we were talking about it while we were on vacation. It's really our first real vacation in 18 years. Oh, my gosh. 18 years. That's way too long. I know. And and I guess it sounds ridiculous because it's not as if I don't get time off to go do things. But what I mean by vacation, where it really like truly felt like it was dedicated towards relaxation, because so often we're traveling to the UK to see family, to Scotland family, um, or Colorado to go see family. So a lot of times, um, and no offense to my family out there, but it doesn't necessarily feel restful. No, it sounds like a a packed agenda. And sometimes you need a vacation from your vacation. Oh, I often feel like that when I get back. And I think this may be the first time ever that I didn't check my email once. Wow. Okay. Now, now I'm really envious and jealous. Um, Yeah. I'm yeah. glad that you're yeah, I'm glad that you're back and that you you had a, a really restful vacation. Well, thank you. It makes all the difference because I'm now in an aloha state of mind. So our first question comes from us from Stilianos, uh, who is a 21-year-old uh, man with cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis who also tested positive for mycobacterium abscessus. So he asks, what is the relationship between mycobacterium abscessus and hemoptysis? Is it common for people with abscessus to have hemoptysis? In other words, more common than other CF patients without or with bronchiectasis and not abscessus. And then he asks, what are the options or tips for this patient to avoid hemoptysis if there are any? Um, well, still the honest, that is a really, really excellent question. M. abscessus complex can definitely cause hemoptysis, and it's usually by two different mechanisms. The first is the infection itself, the M. abscessus infection itself, which causes inflammation of the small airways, the, the, the bronchioles that we've talked about before. This can lead to erosion of the lining of the airway into a pulmonary vein or artery, just basically a vessel. Um, And given your age, uh, 21, this is uh, the likely mechanism. The second mechanism is that abscessus can cause bronchiectasis over over time. Um, As we've talked about before, it's one of the so-called fast growers, meaning that the organism tends to grow within seven days on culture medium. 
And the bronchiectasis is uh, an abnormal widening or dilation of lower airways, and M. abscessus is definitely known to cause that. CF, of course, also leads to that condition from repeated infectious episodes. Eventually, some of those areas can become pretty severe and cystic, leading to repeated bouts of hemoptysis. So it's, it's pretty common. So Stylianos also asked a, another really interesting and important question that, that we've not touched on before because most of what we cover here is non-CF bronchiectasis. But he says, I have a sister that also has cystic fibrosis and we live together. For four years, she was negative for abscessus, but last year she was the first time positive a few months after started, I started treatment. She doesn't have any symptoms. Um, should we just accept as a fact that we want to be near each other and that we are going to share our germs or are there uh, precautions that we should take? And uh, was, was her living with me, was getting mycobacterium abscessus an inevitability? So it's a really, really good question. We know that M. abscessus complex is transmissible among patients with cystic fibrosis. And that's likely how your sister picked up the infection. We know this from data from cystic fibrosis clinics in Europe, as well as in uh, the United States. Um, If she is asymptomatic, she can be monitored really closely with spirometry and CAT scans of the chest. If the bronchiectasis is minimal, it might make sense to treat her now, though, to prevent or delay the development of more severe bronchiectasis. I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that was... I think Colin summed it up well. Our next question comes to us from Sue and is another question regarding abscessus. So she says that she's had abscessus for more than 10 years. She had just stopped treatment after uh, 15 months and uh, has a history of hemoptysis. Uh, Recently, she began coughing up a very small amount of red blood almost every day. Uh, So her physician reduced her sodium chloride from 7% down to 0.9%, which is normal saline. Um, She does the saline attached to an aerobica uh, while on postural drainage in the morning, and then 15 to 20 minutes of active cycle breathing in the afternoon. Uh, And uh, she asks, if I coughed up blood, then do I have to stop airway clearance for one to two days? If I do that, then uh, she's very worried that the NTM will come back because she will be uh, withholding the airway clearance. And that's a that's a really good question, Sue, and and one. I know that Wendy and I have addressed before in a prior episode about hemoptysis and uh, Wendy, you can you can talk about what your practice is again, uh, but I, I seem to recall that we're very very similar. The the hemoptysis is is likely due to a combination of the Mycobacterium abscessus infection causing further damage to the bronchiectatic airways. So intermittent hemoptysis is extremely common in this disease. And what to do in terms of the airway clearance, whether to hold it, whether to continue it, it's a perennial conundrum that we face. In general, I tell my patients to continue airway clearance with the hypertonic uh, sodium chloride if the hemoptysis is mild or minimal, as it sounds like Sue's is. If it's sort of more frank hemoptysis, meaning actual clots or, or frank red blood rather than blood streaked or mixed sputum, then I do ask my patients to hold the hypertonic sodium chloride for tw- uh, 24 to 48 hours. I guess my only other 
point with that would be that um, I generally do not recommend the 0.9% concentration of saline. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that, but the biggest one is just that it's probably not very effective in mobilizing secretions. And I, I would say I really agree with you, Colin. And I think, you know, when we, we talk about hemoptysis and its association just with bronchiectasis in general, we're always asking our patients, okay, number one, can you quantify um, how much blood you're coughing up? And you noted, um, you know, is someone coughing up just blood? Like blood is just pouring out. You'll have patients. It's terrifying. It's terrifying for them. And it's, it's also quite terrifying for me to hear about it. It's terrifying for the provider Yeah, <laughs> yeah to, for the terrifying provider for too. everybody involved. Um, so there is that extreme. And that's a, that's a go to the emergency room and get evaluated moment. Um, but we will ask you to quantify it, um, whether or not you're coughing up clots, if, if it's a teaspoon or a tablespoon, you know, we will ask those types of questions as, um, because it helps us really characterize, I think, the severity of the hemoptysis. Um, you know, it can be associated with patients who have bronchiectasis, even when they do not have any infection. But certainly in patients who have been very stable and then they do have a bout of hemoptysis, I think we all will usually obtain a sputum culture and send it off for routine bacterial pathogens, usually AFB and fungal pathogens, just to make sure that we don't identify a new infection that may be causing inflammation in the airways that's increasing that friability. Mm-hmm, now, mm-hmm. when it comes to management of the airway clearance, I, I think Colin mentioned, I think our styles are very similar. You know, first of all, it's reviewing with the patient, okay, what type of airway clearance are you actually doing routinely? You know, a lot of patients will be using a flutter valve, such as an aerobica device or um, an acapella, in addition to hypertonic saline. And then some patients will also be using a vest. And so, Sometimes it's really patience to to sort of determine what what the culprit is because sometimes it's the flutter valve is really more the culprit as it relates to hemoptysis that particular bout as opposed to the saline. Now some patients are on higher concentrations of saline, so for example, seven percent, and th- that it, you know it's a mucolytic, but it can also be very irritating. So it's doing a great job of breaking up the mucus, which is what it's supposed to do. But sometimes it can be irritating to the to already inflamed, friable airways. And so, one option is to either hold the saline or to decrease the concentration. And it's not necessarily as like Colin mentioned, we're not going to recommend 0.9 percent, but certainly some patients seem to do better with 3%. And Mm -hmm. so it may be a matter of just dropping from 7% to 3% hypertonic saline. And sometimes that does the trick. Um, Sometimes it's just holding the aerobica device for 24 to 48 hours. If, If patients are having, you know, moderate hemoptysis, I may have them hold all of their airway clearance modalities and then slowly reintroduce them you know, after 24 to 48 hours, just depending. Yeah. And if it's a really bad episode, we may even go a little bit longer than that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think we've talked about this in, in past episodes as well, Wendy. The 3% sodium chloride, some patients just prefer, and it can also be very effective. So certainly don't feel like you failed if you can't do the 7%. Some patients don't do, they can't do 7% either because they get 
pretty bad bronco constriction. Some of them just really don't like the taste. It's very, very salty. Others are on an extremely low sodium diet and have uh, salt sensitive hypertension, so they simply can't take it. Um, so there are a lot of different reasons that we might drop you from 7% to 3%. But in general, uh, we, we tend to avoid the, the uh, normal saline concentration, which is 0.9%. Yeah, I think it's at that point, it's palliative. We're probably not doing a whole lot with that. Not a lot no. of efficacy. <laughs> yeah, prob- probably not. And it's really interesting. Even even in uh, so-called sterile saline, 0.9% uh, sampled from hospitals, they've still been able to isolate some bugs from the 0.9%. And so it's probably a good idea just to avoid it completely. The other comment that I wanted to make is, you know, a lot of our patients are on other inhaled therapies, such as inhaled antibiotics. So, um, you know, some of those inhaled antibiotics we've talked about in the past can cause bronchospasm, but some of them also can cause some of that airway irritation and can cause some transient hemoptysis as well. So, you know, sometimes there's a discussion just surrounding a particular antibiotic if, if that's relevant. Yep. Yep. And I don't know, Wendy, is your practice similar to mine in that you ask patients to do, if they're on a nebulized antibiotic, the sodium chloride first, do their airway clearance, wait a little bit, and then do the nebulized antibiotic? Yes, that is exactly what what I counsel. And I think in terms of the teaching with the patient, I think it makes a lot of sense to them when you explain, you know, we're doing this airway, you know, they're sort of, their airways are getting a little bit of a bath. And then we do the inhaled antibiotic, because if you do the saline afterwards, you know, there's sort of this conceptually thinking about, well, you're just washing that out, right? So you want the inhaled antibiotic to remain in those airways doing its good work. Yeah. Yep, totally agreed. I always say it's it's basically cleaning the house to set up the furniture, and that's sort of you want the the antibiotics to really do their job, to do a good job, and to do that, you got to get rid of all of that schmutz that's stuck down there. Yes, schmutz, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Becky asked uh, this question. She says, uh, "My lung doctor, who I consider good, did not really give me." much information except an NTM website and a follow-up appointment. There are several things that are very confusing to me. He had told me that the bronchiectasis was caused by MAC, but I hear others say that they are two different things. Also, I hear some people say that low body weight is a risk factor, but I do not have that. Actually, it's hard for me to lose weight. So uh, Becky, uh, it's a really good observation, question, whatever you want to call it. Your question really relates to the chicken or the egg conundrum with regard to MAC and bronchiectasis. Uh, In short, we're still not sure. Bronchiectasis and NTM lung disease are two separate entities, but one of them can and does make you susceptible to the other one. There are risk factors for both of those conditions, such as low body weight, Uh, Caucasian race, uh, advanced age, but far from all patients fall into those categories. So I have some patients, I'm sure Wendy will tell you, uh, she has some patients who are in fact overweight or who are male or who are non-white. And so uh, certainly people don't fall neatly into categories. 
We do know that low body weight is a risk factor for worse outcomes in patients with bronchiectasis and tends to make you more susceptible to opportunistic infections in general. And that's one of the reasons that we counsel patients to, to, to actually keep their weight up, their BMI generally greater than 20. There are lots of different ways that we can do that. And in one of our future episodes, we're actually going to speak with a dietitian. Yeah, absolutely, Colin. I um, I totally agreed with what you said. You know, patients come in every shape, size, ethnicity, background, as 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 you nicely summarized. And so, you know, we may describe what a typical body habitus uh, that's been seen in some of the studies that have been published in certain body types, but that by no means captures our entire population with this disease, and. It is confusing to patients because people really talk about bronchiectasis and NTM lung disease as going hand in hand. And, and actually, I've said this before in some of the lectures that I've given, that you really can't talk about one without talking about the other. However, you can have bronchiectasis and you may never experience infection with a mycobacterial pathogen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we've talked about that before where, you know, there are some patients who tend to have infections with Staph aureus or Haemophilus influenza or Pseudomonas aeruginosa, and they never have an NTM infection, whereas there are some patients who seem to be more prone to mycobacterial infections, but really we don't see these other pathogens. And so, and then some infection, some patients with bronchiectasis never have infections. And, um, you know, so it it sort of comes in every shape and size. I, I think one thing to keep in mind, though, is that patients who do have bronchiectasis. And when you're evaluated um, in clinic for the first time, they're going to investigate and try to understand why do you have bronchiectasis, right? Is there a secondary disease association? Part of that process is obtaining serial sputum specimens to see if perhaps this could be associated with NTM lung disease. Um, However, um, it, it may or may not be concomitantly or secondarily related to the, the NTM. So um, it's, it's really just knowing that they, they can exist independently of one another, but certainly there can be that association. And we know that patients with bronchiectasis are more f- vulnerable to, infect, to acquiring infections with mycobacterial. Oh, yeah. And then, yep. And NTM infections in particular, many times over the, the population at large. But keeping in mind that any infection causes inflammation in the lungs, which then can perpetuate worsening of the bronchiectasis, and it's not just NTM, any of them can do that. So that's, you know, where treating infections very aggressively in certain situations is warranted. But we've talked about previously that um, it's really taking into account symptoms, too. So, um, you know, we can have bacteria that are isolated from the airways, and we've said this many times, but in another way, asymptomatic patient who has a very stable or, or even completely normal CT scan, in some situations, we're not going to advocate aggressive treatment. And this is why, we'll say it again, Wendy and I are going to preach the gospel of airway clearance. This is why airway clearance is such an integral part of treating this disease. Not only the antibiotics, but just keeping those airways as clean and clear as possible so that the infection 
uh, doesn't have the chance to problematic in the first place. Of course, we can't prevent all of them. Um, that's just simply not possible. But we can certainly hope to decrease those numbers of in, in infections, which is, as Wendy, as you say, leads to worsening bronchiectasis. Absolutely. Stephanie wrote us. Uh, she said she has heard it stated that reinfection of MAC occurs about 50% of the time following treatment. Um, and some say that the year of treatment post negative cultures is meant to uh, sort of seek out and kill the bacteria that is hiding. Um, and that reinfection, when it does occur, come from, comes from re exposure rather than dormant microbes in the same infection. And she asks, which is it? Is it reinfection? Is it, is it relapse of the infection? And uh, she goes on to say that she's currently testing negative for the past nine months. The uh, antibiotics are taking a, col- a toll on her gut, and she's dreading the idea of having to go through it um, again. Um, and so she's just wondering uh, which it is. is. Is she at risk of reinfection with a brand new isolate, or is she at risk of, of the infection relapsing, the same infection sort of coming back once treatment has stopped? Well, from my perspective, I think what we see most often is reinfection with a new pathogen. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that it's going to be so much of this is predicated on every individual patient evaluation, right? So, you know, we typically say, okay, the, the average treatment duration is going to be at least or I wouldn't say average, but the average treatment duration can be 12 to 18 months. I will say that, but we're going to treat at least 12 months beyond sputum conversion to negative. We, but we've also discussed that occasionally, even if patients have negative cultures, they may occasionally have a positive culture and then the next one's negative again. And it's not like we're going to reset the clock. We're not necessarily calling this relapse because you're still treating the same infection. You know, this patient has been on therapy. So that's really the problem here, right? Is that you have this vulnerability in the lungs called bronchiectasis. And we live in, we live out in the world in the environment where there's mold and there's mycobacteria and there's soil and there's water and there's misters and potential environmental exposures. You know, we don't live in a bubble is what I'm saying. So when you have that vulnerability, it's not unexpected that we might you know, occasionally have a sputum that's positive for either a mycobacterial species, or even, you know, someone may occasionally have a culture positive for nocardia or aspergillus. But patient's CT scan is stable. They're still clinically doing well. Their uh, spirometry looks great. It, It doesn't prompt any change in management. But in answer to the question directly, in my experience, this is usually new infection with a different, um, mycobacterial species. And we know this because, the lab is speciating. So sometimes patients will have, you know, infection that they're being treated and it's Mycobacterium intracellulari. And then maybe 10 years later, they have Mycobacterium avium, for example. That's right. And we also know it from genomic studies as well, where these pathogens are isolated and sequenced, and it turns out that they're completely different. Um, so they may even be the same species, but they're they're a, a different isolate. And so I totally agree with you, Wendy. I think a lot of the time it is reinfection with a completely new bug. And that also brings up the point of how to treat uh, relapse, or not relapsed, but uh, how to treat the reinfection. And that simply, we would treat 
treat it the same way as the prior one, provided the susceptibility pattern is the same. That's exactly right. And I think I have pa- I had a patient who asked me that that question recently because she's new to my practice, but had been previously treated and wanted to know if this had to be a completely different regimen or if it would have been the same regimen. And yeah, I get I get that question a lot too. Yeah. Yeah, and causes a lot of anxiety. Um, it's also, you know, important to note that reinfection can and does occur um, even after successful treatment. That's one of the reasons that uh, your provider may talk to you about ways to potentially limit your exposure to mycobacterial species like MAC or abscessus. But again, as Wendy said, you know, we we can't live in a bubble. We live out in the world, and we are exposed to these organisms very regularly. And again, that's that's one more nod to airway clearance. Clarence. Yep. Exactly. And Sarah had a very similar question. She uh, lives in Sweden and is being cared for by a physician who's been following her with CT scans. And the CT scan on treatment showed uh, some some growth in some areas uh, and some uh, waning in other areas. At the same time, her sputum sample tested negative for NTM, even though there might have been mild growth on the CAT scan. So her question is this, can she test negative for the bacteria, uh, even though the CAT scan shows worsening infection? Or can she test negative one time and positive the next? And I, I think we answered the latter part of that question, and that is yes. NTM, lung disease, and MAC in particular can be really frustrating for that very reason that you mentioned, Sarah. Um, you may have intermittent positive sputum samples, and this can mean one of two things. Either your bacterial load at, at this point in your, in your treatment is so low that some of your sputum cultures fail to detect it, or you are becoming intermittently colonized by entirely new isolates, as we just went over. And we've seen both scenarios, and they're really, really difficult to, uh, to, to separate. But if you're on treatment, um, if you're feeling better, if your symptoms are improving, then I would hold the course and not assign too much importance to these intermittent positives. The, the other quick thing I would mention is that CAT scans aren't terribly sensitive for determining um, whether or not the infection is on the rise. So you can have, uh, there are other reasons to have tree and bud nodularity on your CAT scan. There's other reasons to have airway thickening on your CAT scan. You could have a totally different and unrelated infection. You could just have more mucus that's uh, trapped in those airways and need to sort of redouble your airway clearance efforts. But either way, it's not cause for alarm, particularly if, it, uh, if the change was so mild. Thank you for saying that, Colin, because I was making little notes here as you were talking that, well, let's talk about other causes for CT changes. So, Mm, um, you know, a a lot of our patients, and and this is not a criticism, I 100% understand why this is, but they they place a lot of importance on the CT scan. And I I don't want to say they get fixated, but it's really important to always emphasize that it's a global assessment. So how are you feeling? You know, we're asking our patients, how do you feel today? Are, are you coughing? How's your shortness of breath? How's your energy level? Are you gaining or losing weight? So many aspects to just how you are. And then also we're considering spirometry and pulmonary function testing, CT imaging, and also the sputum cultures if we're actively treating and or doing surveillance, right? I have patients who 
the CT scan will look worse, they've been culture negative, and they feel great. Well, there may have been a transient aspiration event. I've had patients go on vacation and, you know, have a few cocktails and go to bed and lay on their stomach. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know. Like we all do. <laughs> yeah. So they may have a transient aspiration event or other things that can happen that will show some interval worsening on the CT scan. And it's, it's not a cause for alarm, especially all other things being stable and clinically feeling well. I will have patients who have major aspiration events with which they're symptomatic, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the NTM is getting worse. You know, they'll have cough, they'll have shortness of breath, we get a CT scan, it very clearly is an aspiration event. Um, the patient may even be smear positive for AFB at that point when maybe they've been culture negative, but nine times out of 10, the next time you get a sputum, it's negative again, because it was just a transient aspiration event. Yeah. I, I totally hear you and agree with you, Wendy. Um, so again, not to lose, um, not to lose too much heart here, uh, even though it can be frustrating to get that report. Um, this next question comes from Ethan and is a, a question that's very near to my heart. He asks, is it safe for people with bronchiectasis to brew and drink kombucha? Ethan, I, you should know that uh, you're probably asking the wrong, wrong person. I'm a dedicated brewer of kombucha <laughs> and drink it very regularly. I tend to believe in Wendy. I, I don't know what your response to this is going to be, but um, the flora in, in the brew is generally a combination of harmless sort of non-pathogenic yeast and non-pathogenic or beneficial bacteria. Um, the pH of kombucha is not particularly good for a lot of uh, pathogens that we normally isolate. It tends to be uh, more acidic. Um, and it does, though, contain a lot of of uh, very friendly bacteria uh, that can help, particularly if you're on regular antibiotics that otherwise alter your your gut flora. I love kombucha too. <laughs> so um, Colin and I were talking about this uh, before we went on air um, because I, I'm an infectious disease specialist. So not only am I treating a lot of NTM infections, but you know, obviously antibiotics to a certain extent are some tools of my trade, correct? So um, one of the thing is, is I, we want to limit complications from treatment, right? And so we know that antibiotics can cause antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which means that they're killing some of the good flora in the gastrointestinal tract that help maintain that balance. And so typically, unless there's an absolute contraindication for my patients to be on some type of probiotic or um, other supplements, I, I really have, I recommend to 100% of my patients who are on antibiotics, uh, unless they're, you know, they're profoundly immune compromised and wouldn't be a good candidate to either start a probiotic, have kombucha, um, kefir, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. I never know if it's. I'm sure I, someone can. Is it Kiefer? We're Kiefer? just going to have. We're just going to have to pull the pull the audience on this. I, ne yes, I have no idea please. if it's Kefir or Kiefer. I've pronounced it both ways. But patients, I have patients who swear by it. Who've who've literally tried everything, and then they land on. I'm going to say kefir, and they make their smoothies or whatever. You know, it's something that you can get in the dairy section, but they really swear by it in terms of trying to mitigate. Just it doesn't necessarily have to be um, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. It can just be a gastrointestinal discomfort associated with being on antibiotics. And I just have a lot of anecdotal reports from my patients for years now that 
you know, they feel so much better. And a lot of them will even continue this after they've completed their course of antibiotics. So. Yep. Yep. Maybe a kombucha a day keeps the infectious disease doctor away. That's right. And we're trying to prevent <laughs> complications from Clostridium difficile. So there you go. Ah, uh, yes, yes. Which we don't want. No. Not at all. Yeah. We got a question from, from Sally specifically about the aerobica and nebulizer cups. Um, so she uh, is spending a lot of time disinfecting the aerobica and the cups. And she says, if you're using the aerobica and a nebulizer in series with a vest for bronchiectasis or MACs, MAC, and you only need to disinfect the aerobica once per week, um, what do you do with the cups? Can you disinfect those only once per week as well? She thought that she should disinfect the nebulizer cup more often, but it doesn't really make sense to use a different schedule than the aerobica. And Sally, I agree with that. Um, so in, in general, what I tell my patients to do is very similar to what the CF uh, Foundation guidelines are, which I've posted to our website, which is that in general, you should... Uh, you should wash your device uh, after every use in warm, soapy water, rinse it, and then leave it to air dry. And generally, uh, once per week, disinfect it. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> ah, good. I'm so glad you agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried you were going to say, what are you talking about, Colin? Tell patients to do it every single day. No. Wendy and I have mentioned this before individually, that we really enjoy answering your questions and then uh, taking these episodes to the air so that everybody can benefit from the response. So keep them coming. Yes. These, these uh, I think, are some of the most fun episodes, quite frankly. We always talk about that before we, we go live, that we so enjoy the questions. And, and some of them are so detailed and people take an incredible amount of time in sharing their stories. And we, we just want to express our gratitude for that. We, we want to hear your stories. We appreciate that you place your trust in us. Um, and Colin does spend a lot of time, most of the time being the one who answers these, so. <laughs> which he and I will have to discuss offline later. Um, so I can be more helpful to him, <laughs> but, but, but that said, we, we, we do have a lot of gratitude and appreciate you trust your placing your trust in us, sharing your stories and bringing your questions to the table. We, we really do enjoy it. And they really are good questions. Um, we've said that before, so uh, we look forward to answering more of them. And remember that if you have um, any questions about this episode or questions about NTM or bronchiectasis in general, please visit our website, ntmtalk.com, where you can also stream our past episodes and leave your comments. You can also find links to helpful resources on both NTM and bronchiectasis. We'd also like to thank our sponsor today, InsMed Incorporated, for their generous support of this podcast. Thank you. Well, Wendy, until we meet again next week. That's a wrap. That is indeed a wrap. Take care, everyone. Stay well. Bye.